0: Welcome to Coffeehouse Questions. This is Ryan Polly. Today I have a fun interview with a good friend of mine, a mentor, one of my professors, Sean McDowell. Uh, he's a gifted communicator with a passion for equipping the church, especially young people. He is the, one of the associate professors in the apologetics program at Biola, has his PhD in worldview studies and apologetics, and is the author of over 18 books, including the one that we're going to be talking about today, So the Next Generation Will Know. Sean, thanks for joining me.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on, Ryan. been looking forward to it.
0: Yeah, so you were one of my first interviews that we did a while back. Um, in fact, I yeah. at, it was almost three years ago. Wow. That was episode 28 of Coffee House Questions. <laughs> and we are now on episode 116. Nice, very nice. So way, to,
1: way to be steady. A lot of people fade out by this stage.
0: Thank you, thank you. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And there were some points, I think, of fading out. But uh, I've kind of kicked back into gear and I'm having a lot of fun doing it now
1: good good for you. We'll keep keep it up, that's for sure.
0: Well, uh, you know, it's you know, you're a good friend of mine close and I uh, love hearing all the things that you're doing and being in your classes and so it's fun when you get to, you know, uh, put out new material like this and not only do I get to read it, but I get to talk to you about it.
1: Well, let's let's do it.
0: All righty. So, uh Sean recently co-wrote a book with uh, J Warner Wallace, so the next generation will know preparing young Christians for a challenging world. And Sean, this comes out on May 1st, correct? That's right, yep. Yeah, so this podcast will be posted on April 27th. So uh, after you're listening to this, I encourage you, go out, check that out, pre-order that book, and be able to get it. Um, but you wrote this with Jay Warner Wallace, and um, what is this book about? Uh, how are we trying to prepare these young Christians for the challenging world that they live in?
1: So this is not an apologetics book per se, where we're answering the problem of evil or making a case for the reliability of the Scriptures or the existence of God. This is a book that would be more like the book Tactics, which is a how-to book. Now, of course, that book is how do you have good spiritual conversations and navigate them with eloquence and clarity? This is a how-to book in terms of teaching truth to the next generation. So it's filled with very practical ideas. And we, we targeted, so to speak, parents, youth pastors, Christian school teachers, mentors, Really, anybody who looks at the next generation coming up and says, my goodness, they have a ton of challenges emotionally, morally, intellectually. What are some practical things we can do to equip them with a biblical worldview?
0: And I think and that's one thing that I love about this book is that uh, almost on every other page, you have practical tips, you have insights, and then you have things of, for the parent. Uh, for the youth worker, for the youth pastor, for the Christian educator, uh, questions to ask, ways to sit down at dinner and have conversations. And it really is those very practical tips that can be put into practice right away and help people engage their young Christians.
1: Well, that was one of our favorite parts of the book, but also a part that took a lot of work is we have these sidebars in every single chapter. So 10 chapters in the book, or eight chapters in the book. And in each chapter, we have kind of a a sidebar that says for a parent, here's how you practically do this for a youth pastor, for a Christian school teacher. And we spent a lot of time thinking through what are just kind of nuts and bolts ways people can put this into practice, like tomorrow, so to speak. And then we have these other sidebars built throughout the chapter. So it looks interactive almost like a web page, like there's the main content, but yeah. then there's these side little nuggets that we come up with that just say. Here's a practical idea that worked for us, and research says it'll work for you as well.
0: Yeah, that's great. Now, Steve wrote in with a question and and asked, are young Christians actually wanting to know this information and are just met with indifference by adults or by the church, or do they typically not care themselves?
1: I think young people and older people want to know truth. We're made in the image of God. And so when Jesus says, love God with your heart and with your soul and with your mind— There's something about the way we're constructed, regardless of our culture, that wants to know truth. But what's so hard with this generation is they have more distractions than any generation has ever had just one click away. So they can constantly distract themselves with Instagram, with Twitter, with Snapchat, with Facebook, with laughs. And so it sets these important questions aside that are important to people and makes it harder to dig deeper with them Than previous generations. So to answer the question, yes, they do want to know, but there's certain things we have to do to earn the right to be heard, to build a relationship and to present the truth in a way that will make sense and be relevant to this generation.
0: And I think that's the hard part with a lot of people is how do we be relevant you know, how do we understand this generation well? And that's actually what you start the book off with is getting to know the generation, getting to know Gen Z that we're trying to work with. So what are some of the kind of, uh, maybe the ways that older generations think about Gen Z? Do they have a good view of the younger generation as we try to approach uh, discipling them?
1: I'm really glad you asked this question because I have an entire presentation. And in fact, you mentioned the pre-order. If people pre-order it, Jim and I are sending them a ton of free talks, uh, Uh, kind of articles that he's put together for training youth and a PowerPoint presentation that cost me a ton of money with insights about this generation. We will send you that for free. But in that talk, one of the things I do when I'm speaking on Gen Z is I ask older audiences, give me a few words that describe this generation. And inevitably, the words would be things like entitled, spoiled, uh, distracted, disconnected. And then I pause. And before I answer, I say, now, let me ask you a question Were most of your words positive or negative. And I let it sink in. And I kid you not, Ryan, you can see people's faces looking at me thinking, oh, my goodness. I tend to see this entire generation through a negative lens. And then I make the point. I say, look, every generation is positive and every generation there's negative. There always has been. There always will be. That's what it means to be human. Yeah. But the way you see this generation will shape how you relate to them. Choose to see the positive. So we do include some areas concerned with the generation and we include some positive trends, but we encourage influencers to look at this generation and the promise and the good that they have to offer will change the way we relate to them. That's the first vital step.
0: And kind of jumping ahead, in one of your chapters, I believe the uh, the chapter talking about how love relates, uh, you give the tip of of entering into your kid's world, and actually, you know, maybe playing video games with your child and, and getting into the things that they're interested in as well. And that, from this perspective, would be very hard if you have a negative view of them and you just keep thinking they have to change to match your world.
1: Well, that's right. If you just think, well, video games are a colossal waste of time and they're addicting kids. You know, if this is the whole lens through which you see video games. Now, of course, there are some concerns with video games that are legitimate, but oftentimes leaders fail to see the fun that young people have, the community that they have, the identity that they find within the video game world. If we don't understand it and approach it through that lens, then we're never going to be able to connect with this generation. So just listen to this generation. So tell me your favorite video game or, you know why is what do you love about doing video games show me how to do it sometime and some kids will resist that but many will be open to it instead of that negative approach just approach it with some humility with some openness step into their world then you might be amazed how much you could build a relationship by doing that
0: and that's the key right there is building that relationship and and you talk about it at the beginning of it's not just about relationship but it's also not just about truth right truth is not enough it has to be truth and relationship and dealing with those difficult issues together in this way. Why, why would you argue that these two aspects are so important rather than just one or the other? Can't we just Ryan, have fun I, with them?
1: <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Ryan, I live in a couple different worlds. I work with a ton of youth ministers, and I went to the National Youth Workers Convention, etc., but I also work in an apologetics program. And my apologetics friends to say tend to say, kids are leaving the faith because they don't have truth. And we see it intellectually and cognitively and that we just need to make a case for them. Many of my youth ministry friends tend to say kids are leaving the faith because we haven't built relationships with them. They need community. We need to love them. And I'm looking at both of these saying, actually, they're both true together. Yeah. We need both of them. In fact, it was in, our, in the book Sticky Faith that Kara Powell and Chap Clark said one of the most powerful ways for a young person to have a faith that lasts is to have a genuine experience of grace, which Mm. is a relational experience with the Lord where it becomes real. And I would say, yes, they're right. You need an experience of grace in relationship with people experiencing forgiveness. But that's not enough. They also need to know that Christianity is true and see that there's good reasons why it's true. So in this book, we're trying to balance between the two of those. So my apologist friends will be surprised at how much we emphasize relationships, and hopefully we'll help balance them out. My youth ministry friends will see how important this evidential apologetics approach is to equipping this generation through relationships.
0: So what are some of those things then that we have to understand if we're going to build a relationship— uh, with this generation? You know, we, we hear Gen Z talked about a, long t- a lot. Uh, and I think from the apologetics community, the people that are probably going to be listening to this podcast, they understand the truth aspect. So when it comes to the relationship, uh, what are some characteristics and de- defining things about Gen Z that would be important for us to understand?
1: Well, in one of the opening chapters, you mentioned that love understands. We have about a dozen insights about gen z and jim and i did a ton of research i mean i found every article every study i could on gen z and also through our own experience parents teachers, speakers said here's about a dozen insights about this generation that stand out and there's a couple that are worth mentioning uh right now one would just be that this generation is deeply lonely Mm -hmm. we we have seen study after study show That our culture as a whole, and in particular Gen Z, are just lonely. And I think technology has a lot to do with this. And I'm not demonizing technology. We can only talk right now because of technology. But we don't think about how it shapes our brains, how it shapes our worldview, and how it shapes our relationships. And I think there's reasons why this first digital generation is, is so connected through the digital world. But disconnected in flesh and blood, and hence we see a rise in loneliness and in hurt and anxiety and depression. This is the relational vacuum. We're also seeing the breakdown of the natural family. By 2026, you know the natural family is going to be a minority of a kid who has a mom and a dad. It's going to be way less, like a third by that time, which is just unbelievable to think about how quickly our culture is changing. So as our culture becomes more secular, there's less value in the family. But as the family breaks down, our culture also becomes more secular. So it's this cyclical motion that's going on. So yes, we have to make arguments against secularism. We also have to build communities. We have to build relationships. And we have to reach the heart of this generation, which is to be known and to be called the beloved. So I would say I'll actually just stick with one for sake of time. The loneliness, the anxiety, the depression, the attempting suicide has increased radically across all segments of society, but even more powerfully with this younger generation, which is why, again, we want to speak truth in the context of a relationship. In fact, I'll tell you one more thing. It's interesting, Ryan. A lot of apologists talk about how moral relativism has increased within this generation, And I think some of this is cognitive and the bad arguments that are coming out in our culture. I think another piece of it is that we have communities that are breaking down. We have relationships that are breaking down and that relational brokenness shapes the way we see the world and affects the way we even process truth. Wow.
0: So many deep issues uh, that are going on. It, are students aware of this? Do do they report they they know that technology is doing this? Or or is technology influencing them in ways that they don't even know, and they know there's issues, but they don't know it's coming from technology?
1: It's not just about students, Ryan. It's all generations, I well, think, that's are true. clueless. I mean, I was just reading a, a book called The Shallows by Nicholas Carr, and he was talking about how changing technology transforms the way we understand ourselves, our relationships, even our brains are being remapped because the constant use of social media. And as I was reading through his book, I'm sitting there going, oh, my goodness, I don't think most people have a clue, whether young or old, how deeply it affects our anxiety, how deeply it affects. It's no coincidence that we live in what's called a post-truth culture, as this technology has hit us in the way that it has in the present. So I think we are just beginning to possibly wake up to how deeply technology is affecting us. But I'm not sure people really have the will. Even when they see it, they'll go, well, it doesn't matter. I still need likes. I don't want to be left behind. Social media is fun. I'd rather distract myself. It's easier than making the tough decisions that we need to make.
0: Now, would you say that this is one of the greatest obstacles? Steve also texted in and said, what do you see as some of the greatest obstacles for preparing young uh, Christians for a challenging world? Would this be that great obstacle?
1: I I think, yes, I, I would say that. I would say probably the biggest challenge would be technology and how they see the world, but we have to break down how being a digital native shapes their worldview. So one of the repercussions of this digital technology is that This generation has become fluid. This is another word that I use. You could say ambiguous or fluid or some other term like that, meaning things that have typically belonged in categories in the past have blurred together. So public and private, uh, home and work, things like the nature of family and gender, things that belonged in certain categories that we could take for granted in the past no longer belong in those categories. So there's a lot of adults who are like, it's obvious that men and women are different. This is so obvious. And this generation, because of ideas that have been pressed to them through media, through the educational system, through the culture we live in through online, is like, actually, there's not a difference. And it's oppressive for you to say that there's a difference. So I look at technology as kind of the top of this, shaping their relationships, shaping their worldview. And so, yes, we have to interact with this generation through technology, but we have to be aware of how deeply it shapes the way they understand the world and their relationships. I think that's the challenge in reaching this new generation.
0: Absolutely. And you mentioned that uh, these lack of healthy relationships that God has designed them to experience and how they really have filled it with counterfeit relationships, uh, being, you know, things like consumerism, just being busy, pornography, social media, video games, uh, these things, you know, other than pornography, not necessarily bad in and of themselves, but uh, are, are being substitutes as, as true relationships. Um, what are your thoughts on this idea of just this busyness and social media and video gaming that our students are getting into to try to fill this
1: void? Well, in this chapter on uh, love relates, we're talking about how human beings, every generation are made for relationships. We're made for relationship with God and for relationship with other people. The greatest commandment, love God and love other people. That's our purpose. But when we don't have those healthy relationships, counterfeits step into our lives and play the role that a healthy relationship is supposed to play. So Dr. Paul Warren, a Christian psychiatrist from Dallas, he said an addiction is something that's used to fill the void that a relationship is meant to fill. So given that this generation has so many broken relationships and few consistent, healthy relationships of both God and other people, counterfeits step in and play the role that those relationships are supposed to play. So these counterfeits can be video games. And again, video games aren't bad, but it can be a medium by which somebody tries to fill their heart with wholesome, pure, good, God-designed relationships with something that simply can't. School can try to do this. Social media can do this. Materialism can do this. This is what idols become is when something fills a relationship God desires us to have with something that cannot fulfill that. And, of course, things like pornography, inherently bad. Really, if you want to understand how porn affects this relationship, this generation, you have to understand not only do teens have hormones and they have access to it, but pornography is filling this deep relational void that this generation has. I mean, think about this, Ryan. A typical teenage kid in generations past had to take a risk to ask a girl out to a dance, (laughs) And she might say no, right? There's a risk here. Now with pornography, somebody doesn't have to take a risk. They can look at images, somebody who's smiling, and somebody who just makes them feel good without taking any risk whatsoever. Well, that can become an idol in somebody's life and what we call a counterfeit that plays the role a relationship is supposed to play. So we are calling out these counterfeits, making people aware of them. And then remind them that this generation will only be whole, will only be fulfilled when they have the relationships God has meant us to have.
0: Yeah, and then parents are need to step in and, and help respond well when these are issues. And, and another part in this section, you share a, a story that I would love for you to share here uh, about uh, expressing unconditional love. And in your tip for parents, you know, if your parent imagine these scenarios, what if your daughter gets pregnant? What if I discover one of my kids is looking at porn? What if my son is caught cheating on a test? You know, how are parents going to respond to these difficult issues when you find out that your child is either doing something they shouldn't or, or, or filling the void of relationships with something else? And so you tell the story of when you went to your dad and asked him if you got a girl pregnant, uh, what was that response like?
1: So let me, let me frame this and then answer it. One of the practical things we tell parents that I think is really valuable and they're getting it for free on this podcast is <laughs> some advice my dad gave me that he practiced. He said, son, I thought through every conceivable scenario that myself or my three sisters would go through and he would have to confront and practiced in his mind how he would respond when he learned that truth. I mean, think about just the, I think the brilliance and discipline to do that. So if my sister came, one of my three sisters and said, dad, I'm pregnant. Or if I came and said, dad, I just, I cheated. I got kicked out of school. I'm expelled. Or if I came to my dad and said, dad, I'm gay or something like that. How would he respond? So this is an incident that you're referring to. I was about 12 years old. And to give context in the, in the eighties and early nineties, my dad had written this book called why wait and really led a, church-wide international movement for sexual purity responding to a lot of the sexual revolution videos books speeches every everything and I'm about 12 years old my hormones are kicking in and I'm thinking man if I got a girl pregnant I could like blow it for my dad and so I went to him someday and I just said dad what would happen if I got a girl pregnant and he had already practiced this in his mind he kind of Lean down, and look in the eyes, and go, son, I don't care if the whole world called me a hypocrite. You and I would work this through together. And what he was showing was grace to me. Yes, I teach truth and God has designed for truth. What's all said and done, I love you and I will in relationship help work this through with you. And I just I, I remember that. So that's the heart of the book is how do we teach truth? but with relationship and with grace and with kindness towards this generation.
0: Well, I know you're short on time. I want to hit on two quick things. And man, there's just so much more in this book. So many more practical tips. I know you're giving some of them away for free right now. Uh, <laughs> but those listening know you have to go out and get this book, pre-order it, and get all the resources that come along with it. But you, uh, the, the first kind of section ends where you're talking about the, the need to teach worldview. And one of the areas you bring up is, is this idea of compartmentalization, that, that we separate the religious from the secular. We don't see how our worldview affects everything. And Jimmy, who is a youth pastor, wrote in uh, with a question kind of relating to this and said, how do we get students to prioritize their faith when they and even their parents seem to prioritize attendance of other events over church? It's more important to go to your sports event and, and to your AP chemistry you know, practice exam than it is to go to youth group.
1: Well, that's, that's a really hard question. That's the trick. I'm not going to pretend that I have that completely <laughs> answered. I get asked that question by youth pastors all over the place because it's a question of priorities. And you can't force a young person to prioritize youth ministry if their parents and family simply don't. So the question I want to ask is this. Uh, a couple questions. Number one is, are you providing something of genuine lasting value that can be transformative in the life of this young person? That's a question you got to really ask. If it's just come, hear a little message, have fun, have pizza, well, kids can watch YouTube. What is it that you are offering distinctly that the parents will see this and go, wow, that's valuable. I see that's important. So one of the last chapters in the book, uh, Jim and I talk about these trips that we do to Berkeley and Salt Lake City. And how we move the model from just teaching this generation to training this generation. So I found with students that when we take these trips, and I know you're doing these as well, Ryan, and working yeah. with this bread at Maven. Yep. I found when we tell students, hey, we're going to get out there. We're going to talk to atheists. We're going to go knock on doors for the Mormons. We are going to go enter into the game. There's some students who won't come and don't pay the price. But there's an awful lot of students who want to step up the plate want to do something interesting, and I want to focus on those few students. So I would just ask this youth pastor emailed in. I'm saying, I would say, what are you doing that uniquely offers value for this generation? They can't get anywhere else. And if you start to ask that unique question, then I think you'll see maybe not as many young people that came to youth group a generation ago. Times have changed. They have changed. But the focus on quality as opposed to just quantity, you can see a lot of young people respond and have some life change that I've seen it. And I know you've seen it, too, Ryan.
0: Absolutely. It's it's one of the most incredible trips. I'm scheduled for two, possibly three of those trips this summer. Great. One of them is an open enrollment Utah trip. So anyone listening, you can sign up for that. So You can email me at contact at and, and and join on that trip. It's for high school students. But uh, I want to finish off our time, and you, you, you mentioned in your book uh, the worldview triangle and how helpful this is to understand the importance of worldviews in a person's life. What is, what is a worldview triangle? How does that work?
1: Well, we're trying to phrase a, a triangle at the top. We have behavior because, frankly, when it comes to youth groups, and this is back to the last question, what a lot of parents care about is you're going to help my kids just not get in trouble and be good moral kids. Sadly, that's why a lot of parents send their kids solely to youth groups. But we put at the top, imagine a triangle, we put behavior. Below that is our values. What we value in life shapes our behavior. So how a kid spends their money behavior is shaped by what they value, what's important to them. And then underneath that is the worldview, which is our philosophy of life. Our perspective of reality shapes what we value and in turn shapes how we live. This is why Barna's research has shown that people who see the world as Jesus does are more likely to live as Jesus does. But we don't leave it there. At the very bottom, we put relationships because rela- because worldviews are learned and experienced through relationship. So it's not just community. I mean, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints can have community. Yep. It's not just truth. Jesus came as incarnation of God in human flesh and built a church, built a community. So kids' behavior is shaped by their values, shaped by their worldview, and worldviews are best learned through relationships. So if we care about this generation, and this is why Jim and I wrote, so the next generation will know, we have to make a priority, step into the world of this generation and build relationships with them but then use some practical strategies to help them see the world Christianly. That's the formula that I think every generation will respond to, and I also know it's true for this Gen Z as well.
0: Yes, that is so good. So true for this generation. Sean, thank you so much for taking this time, joining me on the last day of your spring break uh, to discuss your new book.
1: Thanks for having me on, Ryan. Keep up the good work, buddy.
0: And uh, what your website where people can go get more information, videos, and work that you're doing?
1: Sean And that's where they can find a link. If they just go to Sean org and scroll down, they'll see a link to the book where we'll send them all the free stuff that we talked about as well.
0: Perfect. Check out that link go to that website, get the book. Thank you so much, Sean. You bet. And thank you all so much for listening to the episode this week. I really do appreciate it. There are some awesome, great resources if you pre-order the book before May 1st. So go to seanmcdowell.org and check that out. Also, next week is going to be part two of this conversation, looking at the second half of the book with Jay Warner Wallace. Now, that has already been recorded, but you do have a chance to interact with him And that I'm planning a follow-up interview. And if you are just joining this podcast for the first time, uh, I, last week was a conversation we started with John Merritt. In his book, A Recipe for Disaster. So, this is a little series that we're doing on how we can train up and prepare the next generation. So I'd encourage you to go to uh, facebook.com slash coffeehousequestions. You can see the live stream videos there as well as uh, sending questions for future interviews. Uh, you can follow me at at 3 on Instagram or on Twitter. And again, uh, vote on polls and ask questions for speakers coming up and see all the things that I'm doing with Coffeehouse Questions. You can also text in your questions at 714-989-6927 or email them in at contact at coffeehousequestions.com. This summer is going to be a busy summer. Uh, as a uh, Sean mentioned I'm going on two Maven trips, or I mentioned, but Sean talked about the trips. Two Maven trips this summer. Uh, one of them is an open enrollment trip where anyone can sign up uh, that is in high school going into high school or recently graduated. So you can email in as well and, and to get more information on that trip. So if you have enjoyed the show today, I just want to encourage you to share this with a friend. Go to your podcast listening app and like it there. Help more people experience what you have enjoyed and subscribe if you're not subscribing to the show already. Thank you so much for listening. Sip coffee, think deeply. This is Coffeehouse Questions with Ryan Polly.
1: To follow, your love will guide. Me.